Good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. It's all a blessed thing to know our position before a Lord who is perfectly full of truth and grace. Amen? Well, we continue in our uh, sermon series, Adventures in Acts, asking, can it happen again? Can a group of 120 less, the question is today, Tony, can we do it again? Can we take a group of 120 and can we change Northwest Arkansas? Can we set it on fire for the Lord again? Last week, we talked about courage, having courage. We studied the uh, apostles being flogged, and, and we asked ourselves, how do we stay bold? How do we stay bold in, in this area of Christianity, how do we stay bold when the whole world is telling us to be quiet and set aside and don't talk about that Messiah? And we went through a few points. We can remain bold if we will remember who we serve. We can remain bold if we'll expect trouble. If we're going to be who we ought to be for Christ, then we can just expect trouble. And we can remain bold if we'll develop a community of courage around us, right? If we'll surround ourselves with saints who are trying to do the same thing we're doing, then we can remain bold. And we can remain bold and have courage if we'll just stay focused on what we're all about. All right, we are still in the first seven chapters of Acts, right? We're still in Jerusalem. Christ tells the disciples, we're going to start in Jerusalem, we're going to go to Judea, then we're going to go to Samaria, and then we're going to go to the ends of the earth. Well, guess what? We're still in the first seven chapters. Today, we're going to talk about servanthood. Turn your Bibles over to Acts chapter 6. Be ready. We're going to talk about Acts chapter 6, 1 through 7. If you haven't started making notes in your Bible, this is the time to start making notes. If you're not keeping notes, this is the time to start keeping notes. If you don't have a Bible, we have a bunch on the back table. Pick one up, make it yours, take it home, start reading it, bring it back. If you need a Bible this morning, there's one in front of you. But look up and follow along as we study the Bible. Well, I told you each week we'll talk a little bit about geography and a little history, and I'm going to try to stay true to that. We're still in Jerusalem, and i got to tell you, Levi, I'm having trouble with geography, okay? Because we're staying in this one small area to start off. But I thought it was interesting to point out that now in the current old city of Jerusalem, it's divided into four quarters, the Muslim quarter, the Jewish quarter, the Christian quarter, and the Armenian quarter. Armenian quarter. I looked at that and thought, why Armenian quarter? What are Armenians? What do they believe? Well, Armenians are Christians also. And it's interesting because the Armenians were the first people to declare Christianity as a national religion. Can you tell me who the next two were? Rome. And I'll bet you might never guess the third. Ethiopia. Ethiopia. In 301 A.D., Armenia declares Christianity 
as the national religion. And then Constantine and 313 and then Ethiopia. And we'll study more about how Christianity got down to Ethiopia in just a few weeks. You might ask yourself, where is the Armenian Empire? Well, at this time, by 100 A.D., all of this, everything in color here, whoops, all this. You see Cappadocia, Cilicia, there's Tarsus. If we come down here, here is Tyre and Sidon, and down here is Jerusalem. By 100 A.D., all of this is under Armenian control. All right, a little bit of history. The sex of the Jews. I find this very interesting. Thought you might also. The division of the Jews. There were sects. There are already followings that were separating the Jewish thought of the day. So let's look at those. First, we'll talk about the Pharisees. We've already talked about them before. They started somewhere between 167 or 135 B.C., they had their beginnings in the Maccabean War, rebelling against Hellenistic influence. Hellenistic influence just being any Greek influence. They didn't want any of the Greek culture finding its way into the Hebrew way of life. And that meant religiously and also culturally as far as the language, the dress, or any of their ways. They did not want any of Greek ways seeping into that Hebrew way of life. They, re- they believed the souls of good men would be reenacted or reincarnated and be rewarded. They believed in the existence of angels and demons and salvation through legalism. Now, legalism has taken on a whole new meaning in our culture, okay? But doctrinally, uh, we get confused. Sometimes we call traditionalism legalism. Well, that's not really right. Traditionalism is when you say that tradition is part of your religion and you make tradition part of, of what saves you or what sanctifies you or, or part of, of what is really the core existence of the Christian faith, okay? And that's an apostasy, just like legalism is. But legalism says that if you will just do the things that you should do, if you'll just follow the rules and regulations, David, that are given to you in the Bible, then you get to go to heaven. And the, the heart really doesn't matter. The heart really doesn't matter. That's legalism. The next were the Sadducees. The founder, Zadok, or Sadok, where we get the Sadok, Sadducees, 300 B.C., much older than the rest of all of these that we'll study this morning. They were aristocrats of their day. They were much more accepting of Hellenistic culture, of Roman politics. Uh, They did not believe in the afterlife or the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels or demons, and that's why they were sad, you sees. (laughs) They were politicians and businessmen. Caiaphas was a Sadducee appointed by Rome as the high priest. They were the, part, they were the group of men that totally freak out when Jesus runs in and he starts turning over the money changers and he starts driving out the livestock. Why? Because they were doing business. 
These guys have a political agenda, and it's to make more money. And that's how we see them in New Testament times. Some of the things that the rabbinical writings later on about the Sadducees are not very good. Uh, they pretty much say these guys have lost, these gentlemen have lost uh, their love for the Lord, and they are just political, and they're just businessmen taking advantage of the people. And I believe by what we see Jesus doing in the temple, we'd have to probably agree with that. The next is the Essenes. Their beginnings come just after the Maccabean War. They rejected all Herodian thoughts. They didn't want anything to do with the Greek culture. They they didn't want anything coming in at all from the outside world to influence their Hebrew way of life. Uh, They disappear sometime around 70 A.D. at the destruction of Jerusalem. We don't know for sure what happened to them. We do know that they were probably the sect that gave us the Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay, They They were communal in property and possessions. They shared everything. They didn't consider that they owned anything. Many practiced sexual abstinence. They adopted orphans. They would not go into war, and they would not make instruments of war, and they would not engage in commerce for profit. It is probably the Essenes in Matthew 19 and 12. Christ says, some choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He's probably speaking about the Essenes. The next are the Herodians. The Herodians are a political party of rich and influential people who were accepting and supportive of Herod's rules. Some even believed that the Messiah would come from Herod's family, which is a total apostasy because we know that the Messiah is going to come from the tribe of Judah, right? And so he's not even a Jew. And most of these people were concerned about power and politics. Then we have the Zealots. We've studied the Zealots a little bit before. They're a Jewish patriotic party interested in overthrowing the Roman domination of, in Palestine. They started in 6 AD with Judas the Galilean. They, they killed Judas the Galilean. Rome killed him. And when he was killed and many of his men were killed, they dispersed all over Judea. And they became really a dispersed group of terrorists trying to drive out Rome. One of those terrorists become a follower of Christ, an apostle, a zealot, uh, and he was an ex-revolutionary, Simon the Zealot. All right, we come to Acts chapter 6, 1 through 7. You got your Bibles open? First, let's define servanthood. It is that state, that condition or quality one who lives as a servant. Further, a servant is, first of all, one who is under submission to a master. Now, this morning, some of you may say, well, I'm not under any master. Oh, yes, you are. Christ says you're going to either serve Satan or you're going to serve him. And you can't serve both. If you say you're serving both, you're serving Satan. It is a a state of mind. It is a condition of the heart. It is a quality, Mike, of our character 
to be a servant. That's what servanthood means. Let's read together. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in daily serving of the food. Let's just stop right there. You see that complaint? Some of your versions might say murmuring. Anybody's, anybody's this morning say murmuring? Yeah, we've got a few that says murmuring. This is a behind-the-scene, quiet finger-pointing. This is, David, this is the same thing that we see in Exodus 16. Remember when the Israelites were murmuring about their food and complaining? This is the same type of of murmuring, disrupting the flow of, of what's going on by complaining and murmuring about what's going on. It's it's behind the scenes. It's quiet, just complaining and pointing the finger at other people. This word Hellenistic again, this means, in this case, Hellenistic Jews mean these are Jewish people who've taken on the Greek culture. They dress Greek, they spend Greek money they, they, or, or Roman money, and they would have studied from the Septuagint, okay? The Septuagint is the Greek translation of all Hebrew scripture, verse 2. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit, that's capital S, the Holy Spirit, and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we may devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, now I just want to stop right there for a second and point out the word serve, tables, and the word ministry come from the same root word, diakonos. Diakonos, we get our word for what? Deacon. It means servant. Diakonos means servant. I, I want you to notice both of these groups of men, both the apostles And those who are going to feed the widows are servants. I also wanted you to notice that scripture here, Luke tells us that prayer is just as important as the ministry of the word. Do we ever consider that? Prayer. Do evangelists, do preachers think about prayer just as important as ministry of the word? The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, (laughs) just seeing if you were paying attention, Parmenius, Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. Now, what is a proselyte? A proselyte is someone who ethnically is not a Jew, but who has converted over to the Jewish faith. So this man was a Jew, was a worshiping Jew, and now has converted into Christianity. Okay? I also have Stephen and Philip highlighted here because I want you to think about they don't stay table servers for long. They're going to be just a few more chapters just actually in the same chapter here in 6 later on. They're going to be powerful 
evangelist. Matter of fact, Philip is a powerful evangelist, and he has four daughters who prophesy with him. And they all, and these, verse 6, and these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Do you get that? Many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Just a few weeks before these guys are calling for Jesus' blood are now becoming Christians and coming along in the faith. Lessons about servanthood. One, number one for good servanthood. If we're going to be servants of the Lord, we need to recognize needs. These widows have been cut off. You see, these were Jewish women, Jewish widows, who had been taken care of for years by the Jewish faith. But now they have professed Christ. And guess what? The Jews have cut them off. And now it's the responsibility of the Christian faith to take care of those in their family. Christ told us that that was going to happen, right? He says... They will divide father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Why? Because some are going to profess Christ and some aren't. And that's going to divide families. And it has done this to these widows. And good servants recognize need. Number two. There is unity in diversity. The Hellenistic Jews are making a complaint about the Hebraic Jews of the day. The apostles are quick to gain a multicultural solution to what's happened here. They quickly see that we've got a division among the Christians that doesn't need to be. And they find a multicultural cultural way to bring them together. I love the words here from what Timothy Keller says. What binds Christians together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they have been saved by Jesus Christ. Amen? They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. There is unity and diversity. Number three, good leadership is transparent. It empowers and it delegates. And you're saying, well, Keith, I thought we were studying servanthood today. I'm telling you that if you're going to be a good servant, you're going to have to be a good leader because we're in an upside-down kingdom where the, greatest, where the servants who are the greatest are the leaders. First, I want you to see the apostles don't try to hide the problem. The apostles, the leadership of the day, could have gone behind the scenes and pulled in these people who were murmuring. 
and gotten on to them and tried to straighten it out that way, but they're not that way. They're transparent. They come before the whole congregation and they empower them. So they're transparent and they empower. They say, pick among yourselves seven men to take care of this problem. And then they delegate it. They delegate the work out. Can I tell you this morning, if you have a leadership role in the church and somebody has convinced you, Preston, that you've got to do it all, that you've got to take care of everything, you are going to wear out. You are going to become exhausted. And sometimes we don't get that till later on in life. Guess what? It took Moses over 80 years and his father-in-law to figure this out. If you turn over to Exodus 18, you'll see Jethro comes to town. The, the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness. And from the morning until evening, Moses is st- sitting in front of the people and he's judging them. And Jethro comes to visit him and he sees Moses from morning till evening trying to judge over a million people all alone. And Joseph says, why are you doing this alone? Jethro says, why are you doing this alone? This thing you're doing is not good. Surely you're going to wear out. And then Moses goes into this whole thing. Well, it's my responsibility to take care of. And Jethro says, you moron. No, he doesn't. He says, get some help. Select some people who are good, God-fearing men to do some of this judging. Let them judge the people. Now, when you can't handle it on your own, let them kick it up a level. And if those men can't handle it, let them kick it up a level. Until it's back to you. Good leadership is transparent. It shares with the church the problems and the issues. It empowers people to make decisions on their own. And it delegates some of the responsibilities of the day-to-day things. So the leadership can take a priority in what's important over the church. Servanthood... Number four, servanthood has its priorities, but all service is important. Paul goes into great lengths with this, talking about how important it is that we all do our part. Not all our ears, not all our eyes, not all our mouth, not all our hands, but we are all important to the body of Christ My mind always goes to the story of Martha and Mary. Jesus comes to town, comes to the house of Martha. She invites them in. And Martha gets all upset because Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening and soaking up his teaching. And Martha's upset because she's in the kitchen and she's trying to get everything done. And she comes to Jesus and she says, I'm trying to get all this stuff done and Mary's not helping me. Now scold her and tell her to get in the kitchen with me. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Now as a kid, I was taught, 
Martha was bad and Mary was good. How many of you got taught that? Scripture doesn't say that. Christ doesn't say that. Martha was doing a good thing and Mary was doing a good thing. And Christ tells Martha, hey, she's doing, she's chosen a better thing. But at no time does he get on to Martha and say what you're doing is not important because it was important. Martha's service to the disciples and to Christ was very important. Servanthood has its priorities, but all service is important. Number five, servanthood has no place for a victim mentality. My kids are getting tired of hearing this, but Melissa said it about two months ago, and it has influenced every story that I read in New Testament Christianity, especially in Acts. We're in a class, and she says, Keith, God doesn't raise up victims. He raises up servants and leaders. These Hellenistic Jews had a victim mentality. They thought, oh, we're, not, we're being taken advantage of. Look, our widows are not being served. They're prejudiced over us because we've taken on this Greek culture. Look at how they're treating us. Folks, victim mentality freezes you and keeps you from being the servants that you were designed to be. It keeps you from being the Christians that Christ wants you to be. How many of you have that victim mentality? It freezes you and keeps you from being the Christian and the servant that God has designed you to be. See, we are in this upside-down kingdom that Christ told us about while he walked this earth. In Matthew 20, he says, Whoever desires to be great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to what? On 20 verse, or chapter 23, he says, The greatest among you will be your servant. This is an upside-down kingdom where the leaders are at the bottom and they're doing the serving first. Is victim mentality keeping you from being the Christian that you ought to be, from serving those around you? That victim mentality, oh, woe is me, woe is all my life, everything is bad, and it keeps you from serving Christ and recognizing the gifts and the blessings that you have in your life? I got to... Raise my hand here and say, I've been that guy. I have been that person before, and it kept me from serving Christ the way I was designed to serve Christ. Well, one more point from these scriptures, and the sermon will be yours. When we are servants, the kingdom will grow. Read this with me. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. You see, if we have servanthood down like we should have servanthood down, our church is going to grow. The kingdom of God is going to spread. When we see 
the needs that need to be filled and fill them, we will grow. When we drop our pride and our prejudice and we have unity in the spirit, we will grow. When we're transparent and when we communicate our problems with one another, we're going to grow. When we stop having victim mentality, we're going to grow. It can happen again. Can it not? Stand up, please. Have you chosen five souls? I wasn't doing that as a mental exercise. I really did want you to write five people on a list. I want you to be praying for them. I want you to be fellowship and sharing with them. I want you to care for them. And then I want you to invite them to worship with you. I want you to be good servants to them so they might come to know the Lord. Can it happen again? I think it can. This morning, if you haven't committed your life to Jesus Christ, if you haven't confessed him and repented of your sins and put him on in baptism, if you're not living a life for Christ this morning and you need to do that, you're welcome to come to the front Or you're welcome to see any of the elders who will be standing at the back waiting on you, wanting to serve you as we sing.